Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang, and in episode four of this podcast, I continue my discussion from the previous show on how the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the resulting protests have affected America, as well as the sports world, and how it can change USC and college athletics. Joining me for this virtual roundtable talk of sorts are three of my longtime friends and fellow Trojans. Marcus Grant, fantasy football analyst for NFL.com and the NFL Network. Corey Olson, news anchor and reporter for KTRH Radio in Houston, and providing perspective from where George Floyd was killed to set off this chain of events that we've been seeing. Lifelong Minneapolis area resident Bill Sue. And if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, please subscribe and rate the show on all of your favorite podcast directories, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. You can also go to the website Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Guys, you can let everyone know where they can catch up with you on the web or on social media. Yeah, you can find me at Marcus G on Twitter. It's M-A-R-C-A-S-G. I post daily articles and updates and anything meaningful that I say is at KTRH.com and also news radio KTRH on Twitter and on Facebook. And you can follow me on my Twitter at Bill Sue. That's B-I-L-L-S-O-U. I think it's important to note that we all come to our personal perspectives through the prism of our individual backgrounds, which includes our race and ethnicity, where we grew up, where we went to school, and who our friends and coworkers are. As an Asian American who immigrated to the United States with my parents when I was a baby and grew up in a mostly white community in Northern California, I've experienced racism personally during my life. I'm going to guess that Bill, as a fellow Asian American, has probably encountered it as well, but he can speak more to that if he'd like to in just a bit. Corey, as the Caucasian representative on this panel, he's been blessed to have white privilege on his side, and I don't say that as a criticism or to knock him in any way, because I consider him to be a very respectful and thoughtful person who treats others fairly and equally, but it's just a matter of fact that he doesn't have to deal with some of the things that Marcus, Bill, and I will go through as people of color. And the core issue here is the treatment of African Americans by the police. And so I want to let Marcus have the floor here to go over his thoughts coming from his experiences as a black person in America, because he's the one who belongs to a group that is disproportionately affected by police brutality in this country. So I'll say this. I don't have any grand stories of being accosted by the police or or anything like that. And I don't say that as a brag. It just is a a statement of fact. But it's interesting because I think about these small things, just sort of the little, I guess, in today's parlance, they're referred to as microaggressions or just the questions that are asked well-meaning, but just sort of come off weird. I flash back to 
you know, look, we were all USC alumni, flashback to our time on campus, and I had a work-study job in the journalism department. And part of that job meant touring prospective students around. It was actually part of the job that I really loved, just touring high school students around who were looking to come to USC and trying to sell them on the university and showing them the campus or what have you. You would be amazed, or maybe not, at the number of times I was asked by parents whether or not I played sports, whether I was on scholarship playing a sport at USC. My answer was generally I play rec league, I play intramural rec basketball, and our team is maybe okay at best. But it is sort of that, I guess, assumption that I'm there because I'm an athlete or what have you. But I grew up in a pretty racially diverse suburb in the Bay Area in Northern California. And I think in a lot of ways, I was sort of naive as to how racism worked and how it functioned. I think I was, as a kid, you know, like a lot of us, you read about it in history books and, you know, we we're all taught about slavery going through school and you learned about the civil rights movement in the 60s and Jim Crow and that sort of thing. I think that is where your idea of racism story gets shaped. So for me, I think the big eye-opener, if anything, was Rodney King back in the early 90s. I think I was 13, I believe, 13, 14 years old when that happened. And remembering to myself, I guess if anything, that was maybe the first viral video, right? Because the internet wasn't really a thing then. And I just remember to myself thinking that, well, there's no way that these cops aren't going to get punished because it's on video. I mean, here they are like beating the snot out of this unarmed man after a traffic stop. It just doesn't make sense. And I remember when they were acquitted, just kind of being shocked, being flabbergasted by the whole thing. I remember, of course, that set off the riots in Los Angeles in 1992. And I remember there were even protests and marches in the Bay Area. They shut down the Bay Bridge connecting Oakland and San Francisco because there were people marching across it and traffic was completely shut down for a little while. Yeah, and so that was sort of the beginnings of it. And I think as we have evolved into the social media era, you start to see more instances of it. And it does, look, I feel like being Black, it does, it hits in a certain sort of space. And I will say that now being a father and having a son who is 14 months old, it hits even more fearing that at some point I may have to have a conversation with him about this. I see him playing and giggling and laughing and just sort of, as a parent, you always want that for your kid. You always want him to continue to be that way. But you realize that at some point, that's just a conversation that you're going to have to have and you hope that you can push it off as long as possible. So I will say the last week or so has been interesting. It has been different in the sense that Bill, I think, touched on it earlier that we're at a moment where I think a lot more people are starting to pay attention and starting to sort of push back against this thing. People of all ethnicities starting to push back against this whole thing. And I've had a lot of conversations with friends of all races about what's kind of going on and what the next step should be. And on the one hand, it's certainly encouraging. On the other hand, it's sort of mentally and spiritually exhausting um, to kind of have to, to have those conversations over because it's not easy. It's just not an easy thing to talk about. But it does, I think when I stop and catch my breath and look back, it does encourage me at least that maybe this is a movement that is starting to at least turn the tide a little bit. I still, like I said earlier, I still believe change will be incremental, maybe slower than a lot of us would like it to be. But I do feel like there's at least more of a push going that direction than there was six months to a year ago. Yeah, I do want to say that obviously the Rodney King riots occurred just a couple of years before we started at USC. And I remember Again, I grew up in the Santa Cruz area in Northern California, and it is mostly white in that area. But I would have people say, oh, you're going to school in the hood. You're going to go to South Central for college. It was just the things that people thought about USC and the neighborhood. 
that weren't true, basically, but they're shaped by things that they see like that. And that's the kind of stuff I think you're talking about, Marcus, is that there are perceptions that people will have on you as a black person, on USC as a community. And I think that's the kind of stuff that people need to be educated on, that they can't jump to these kind of conclusions, that they have to look at people as individuals and not specifically as just a stereotype. And so I think that's what we're trying to move forward with. And that's where I think we see a lot of these issues between the police and African-Americans is that there are stereotypes, there's perceptions that are being drawn. And that is what's coloring all of these interactions between both sides of it all. And so I think we are going to have to look at things going forward from an individual perspective to look within ourselves to see what we can do better, to see how we can affect change and how we can help to influence others who might not really be on the right path. Or if that's what we're seeing in these protests, that maybe some people have had their sense of duty maybe brought up to try and help their fellow person, regardless of what their race or ethnicity may be. And I think there are a lot of ways that things can be better. There are a lot of things that we can all do individually to make things better. But we're also seeing how sports can play a role in all of this. We've seen athletes, like I mentioned in the open, from all over the world showing their signs of protest. Soccer players in Europe wearing armbands and wearing messages on their shirts underneath to show their support for Black Lives Matter and for the protesters here in America. And we saw what one of the biggest athletes in American sports, the reaction he had to deal with when Drew Brees on a Yahoo Finance show last week tried to conflate the issue of the protesters and Colin Kaepernick kneeling with the flag and being disrespectful to the flag during the national anthem. And as we all know, the message here is not about the flag or showing any kind of disrespect. It's about the issues of police brutality and racism in America. What did you guys think of how swift and severe the backlash was to Drew Brees? I'll say this. I mean, I kind of wasn't surprised. I know the popular phrase nowadays is read the room. And he obviously didn't do that. And I think at least for me, and I think for a lot of other people, the biggest frustration was it felt like we had litigated this whole argument four years ago, that when Colin Kaepernick first started taking a knee and protesting, that was obviously a big part of the conversation, but it felt like we had sort of put that aside, right? That we had kind of gotten to a consensus on what it was about. And whether you agreed or not, that was a completely different conversation. But the idea of what it was for and what it wasn't for, or what it wasn't aimed at, I felt like that was sort of litigated. And so for Drew Brees to sort of come back and say that, here we are four years later, it just felt like at some point you're being intentionally obtuse. And I think that for a lot of people is sort of where the anger and the frustration came in, because it was just like, you brought up a thing that felt like, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it felt like settled case law at this point. And so that to me was, I think, where a lot of the anger came from. I'll say, I don't know, I think Drew Brees just maybe, <laughs> unfortunately, found out the hard way about, especially when we're only a week out of this and we haven't even had the final funeral to burial yet. Maybe it's just too raw right now because one thing I thought was kind of odd, it was an interview with Yahoo Finance. I don't know what that was all about. Why is Drew Brees doing an interview with Yahoo Finance to talk about this issue or whatever? So the whole thing seemed kind of strange to me, but I couldn't believe the backlash because when I read his initial statement, in that statement, he talked about the history. He said this flag represents a history, obviously not perfect. It represents the civil rights movement in the 60s and all the things that have happened over the decades that have changed our union. 
all the changes we've gone through in the 200 plus odd years of this country. And so I think he at least, I think he was trying to say something that I didn't think was controversial at all. And then it was like the firestorm was just stunning to me to see uh, across the sports world, the NFL, the harshness. I think Drew Brees maybe kind of like, and then of course he stepped back the next day and uh, put out his apology, but then I'm seeing a lot of people now ripping the apology. So I don't know if Drew Brees might've been in a lose-lose situation here. might've been better just to lay low and keep your mouth shut. And this, and it's kind of what he said in his apology. So maybe I should talk less and listen more, but maybe he just wasn't the right time to try to even wade into whatever he was trying to say. Cause some people, it seems like, I don't know, I keep hearing we need to have a national conversation and let's have a national conversation, but then sometimes the conversation and it's going to be uncomfortable, but then when it gets uncomfortable, some people just say, well, that's, it's like, okay, you want to have a conversation, but then you want to shut down what somebody else was saying. So it's like, if we're gonna have a conversation and it's going to be uncomfortable and everyone's going to say their side and everyone's going to say what they think, then I think we at least owe it to everybody to kind of listen to what everybody's saying and maybe understand what they're trying to say. And again, this goes back to our experiences, like Marcus talked about, Nara talked about in the intro. We all come at this from different perspectives. So what one person hears Drew Brees saying something and hears something totally different than another person can hear it. And it seems stunning to me sometimes that two people can hear someone say something or someone do something and get totally different reactions, like the Colin Kaepernick thing. Some people can see him kneeling and say that's a beautiful, peaceful symbol. And other people see it something totally different. They say, why would you kneel during the national anthem? That's something that's disrespectful to the anthem or to that moment when everyone stands or whatever. So everybody comes from different perspectives. And because of that, everybody gets very emotional. And I was just kind of stunned. So I think that it was just a little surprising to see how emotional it got with Drew Brees. But again, everybody's got different perspectives and different life experiences they're coming at it from. And it's funny that some people, we cast aspersions what we think their intent was when instead it's, that wasn't their intent, but that's how we received it. And so some of the stuff gets lost in the translation. That's just the difficulty, I guess, in all of us in trying to communicate with each other on these hot button issues at the same time that we're all coming at it from such different perspectives based on our lives. So I just thought maybe Drew Brees learned, maybe take the Peyton Manning route and just be non-controversial and do funny stuff and stay out of some of the hot button issues or be ready to take whatever's going to be thrown at you if you do. So that's what I took from it. I'll say this though. I do think with his apology, apologies, I guess, because he made a couple of them. I can't obviously speak for everyone, but I will take him at face value, right? And say that, okay, he obviously heard from a lot of people. He heard from teammates. He heard from a lot of other people too about what he said. So I'm willing to sort of take him at face value and say that, okay, he's willing to sort of take a step forward. Now, what he sort of does during the season will have an impact on some of that too. And, and how he responds, you see my kid has an opinion too, but how he responds and how he interacts with teammates who may protest or who may have opinions and these sorts of things. So it will be when we get to September, October, whatever, where he sort of puts his money where his mouth is a little bit. But at least at face value, I'm sort of willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. All right, let me give you my opinion. And I'll be honest, I don't really know how I feel about Drew Brees. And I'll be honest, I don't know how much I care about Drew Brees in this particular conversation. I can see the viewpoint that when he was talking about the flag, he actually was meaning to talk about something else, quote unquote. And those who, well, I'll say it this way, hound him down, thought that he was talking about something else when he conceivably could have been talking about just the flag. I've just noticed something, however, about, well, George Floyd and the protests. There seems to be this Well, I keep talking about momentum and then this sustained will for change. In this, I don't know, zeitgeist, I kind of feel that more and more people are calling out other people when it comes to race 
and racism and racial microaggressions. And we're all sports nuts here. I think we've all noticed that since the death of George Floyd, we have seen stories of racism come out in sports as well as entertainment. I typed up a list here of racism-related things in college sports that have happened in the past two weeks. You know, for example, that the defensive coordinator at Utah has been suspended because he used a slur in a text and he may have used racial slurs when coaching. The Iowa strength and conditioning coach has been put on leave. Former players of the men's basketball coach at Texas State has said that he used um, racially insensitive comments while they were playing under him. There have been a couple of stories on Twitter from former women's gymnasts at Alabama and Florida who said they were mistreated. I'm just noticing that because of the worldwide grief over George Floyd's death, people have become empowered or emboldened, whichever term you want to use, to highlight incidences of people mistreating other people because of race. And in that environment, maybe, possibly, Drew Brees should have read the room and kept his mouth shut. But I think everyone here is kind of just noticing how the topic of race has kind of expanded beyond the topics of police brutality and mistreatment of communities of color, but just stories of racism in general. Have you guys noticed that? I think really it's more that people of color, minorities, are more willing to speak out now because they're seeing that they're not alone. They're seeing that there's a change going on and that they have to be the ones who drive the change and educate others, whether it's white people or people of other races or ethnicities, about their experiences and what they're facing. And again, now that we're in a world that's run with social media and you have all kinds of people who are able to get their voices heard out there, I think that's what is leading to a lot of this, is that you can get your voice out there, you can try and get heard, and there are other people like you out there who want to create change, and obviously a change is necessary. I don't think anyone is going to dispute that, or if they do, they're living in the past in a different time, in a different world, because this is what needs to happen moving forward, and... I think what we see, I mean, let's go through the history, and we talk about now, you see a lot of people who quote Martin Luther King Jr., you see a lot of people who quote Muhammad Ali, and they talk about how great those two men were. Well, during their times, they were vilified, they were hated. At the time of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, a Gallup poll said that there were two-thirds of Americans who were against him. So he was, quote-unquote, the most hated man in America at that time. Now, he has a holiday after him, and he's considered one of the great people in American history. Muhammad Ali was vilified for protesting the Vietnam War, and then he became someone who was a symbol for fighting against racism and fighting for minorities and the struggles of the oppressed. So is that going to be Colin Kaepernick's legacy during the time that he's fighting for his causes? He is vilified. He is hated. He has lost his career, basically, because of it. But are we going to look back in 25 years and put him in a similar regard to others who have tried to fight for rights and freedoms in the past? I think so. 
I think if there's a maybe a more apt parallel to Colin Kaepernick, the first thing that comes to mind for me is Kurt Flood in the sense that you talk about Muhammad Ali and you even talk about John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Those guys were all sort of champions. Like Muhammad Ali is on top of his social justice stances. It's still one of the greatest athletes. I mean, just from a pure athletic standpoint, still one of the greatest athletes of all time. John Carlos and Tommy Smith won Olympic medals. I mean, Colin Kaepernick was five yards away from winning a Super Bowl, but that was kind of on the field, maybe his greatest accomplishment. Kurt Flood is never remembered as being a star baseball player. He was a good, not great player who challenged the reserve clause, was ostracized and eventually blacklisted, blackballed from Major League Baseball because of it. But man, there's not an athlete alive that doesn't owe a debt of gratitude to Kurt Flood for allowing them to make the kind of money that they make. And so I think in that respect, I think that's maybe the closer parallel for Kaepernick. And I think he's at a point now where even if he wants to play, which I believe he does, I think football would need him more than he kind of needs football right now. I don't want to get too fine a point about Colin Kaepernick's legacy because we're probably wrong. I think this is going to be sad for me to bring up, but well, I'll risk it anyway. The difference I see between Kaepernick and Muhammad Ali, and it's an apparent one, and maybe it's an unfair one, but Muhammad Ali is Muhammad Ali, you know? And Colin Kaepernick, he's a really good player for his time, but he's not a Super Bowl champion, and he's not going to be a Hall of Famer. In fact, it appears as though the most notable thing about his NFL career was that his NFL career was basically taken away from him because he decided to take a knee to protest against societal issues. That's, I don't want to say this, but that kind of makes Colin Kaepernick a martyr. And while martyrs are remembered, they certainly aren't known as fantastic players. And that's what we kind of want in our athletes. They hit the home run, they score the touchdown, they lead in the championships. And unfairly, Colin Kaepernick didn't do that because his career was taken away from him. So I can see Colin Kaepernick finally being remembered but there would be a tinge of bitterness by the way the powers that be altered his life and his career just because of a decision he made. A decision, by the way, that the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, exonerated him for just a few days ago. Colin Kaepernick is proven to be right. And so he was a pariah in his time. It was long enough for probably his career to be over. But more and more people are going to say that Colin Kaepernick was right for doing what he did. And again, that doesn't make him a champion, and I don't know if that makes him a true, well-known statesman. I'm sorry to say, it kind of makes him a martyr, you know? Again, when Muhammad Ali was doing his protesting, he was hated just as much, if not more, than Colin Kaepernick. And maybe because he was a champion, maybe because he was an all-time great, and I would not say that Roger Goodell exonerated Colin Kaepernick. He made a statement, a bold statement, by NFL purposes, and certainly one that maybe was a shocker to many people based on how the NFL has been handling this issue. But he didn't once mention Colin Kaepernick by name in that video, in that statement. So he may be saying the right things, but I think that's why some people are still skeptical about the NFL's motives and what they're doing because he didn't mention Colin Kaepernick by name. He didn't give him an exoneration. He said that they've made mistakes and that they're going to do better. Well, I would hope so. Fair enough. 
Well, I'll just hop in and say I understand what everyone's saying here. I don't think at all Colin Kaepernick would compare to Muhammad Ali in the sense that I kind of like what Bill said. I mean, what Muhammad Ali had such a platform because he was the greatest, as he would tell you. I mean, he was the greatest fighter in the world. It'd be like if Michael Jordan, who just been controversial about Michael Jordan not taking stands, but Michael Jordan is someone who has that kind of platform. LeBron James, we're seeing kind of use it now has that kind of, because of what they accomplish in their sport, they have that kind of platform because of their greatness. And that gave them more gravitas. If Muhammad Ali was just a young fighter who had maybe a barely above 500 record and was kind of not that well known and was taking a stand, that'd be more like Colin Kaepernick. Because Colin Kaepernick, to me, isn't in that same league as of Muhammad Ali when it comes to athletic accomplishments, not even close. So I don't think that's an apt comparison myself. But as far as Colin Kaepernick being out of the league, and this gets back to the theme of what I'm talking about, I still think we forget, okay, right when all this was going on, it just happened to coincide, maybe coincidentally or not, with his play on the field was not what it was those first couple of years when he led them to the Super Bowl. So I think that was a factor. I mean, maybe I'm just being naive here, but if Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson did the very same thing that Colin Kaepernick started doing this year, I don't think they'd be blackballed from the league. Because in my opinion, if you can play and if you have that kind of talent, no owner is going to be stupid enough to take that player out of the league. So if you can play, I think they'll find a way around it. And there's been other players who have taken similar stances who haven't been quote-unquote blackballed or taken out of the league. So I think there's people overlooking the fact that it coincided with maybe it was the worst timing for Colin Kaepernick, right? When he was finding his, uh, whatever, his inner voice of wanting to fight for social justice was right when his on-the-field play really declined rapidly for whatever reason. And that is one of the reasons why it's made teams, even teams that have considered thinking about signing him, it's sort of a not worth the risk. It's like, this guy didn't look that great the last year we saw him on the field, and we're going to get a ton of mixed reaction or maybe more negative reaction than positive reaction. Why would we, as a business, want to even risk this for our potential backup quarterback? I think teams have just made that business decision individually. I don't think there's been mass, like the loaners all got together and said, keep him out of the league or could they order them. I think it's just, I can kind of see where a team would go, you're going to sign this guy. You're going to put your team through this kind of media firestorm for a backup quarterback who last time we saw him had his worst career season. I think it's more that type of decision that's gone into why he hasn't gotten back to the league. And the fact that he hasn't necessarily been very cooperative, the whole workout fiasco thing that went on last year was just, we all saw that worked out. So I think there's been other factors involved with why Colin Kaepernick's out of the league. And I think that's something you thought about as well. I guess I'll respond by saying that I think that's for a lot of people, myself included, that's kind of where the frustration is, though, right? Is that you watch Nathan Peterman still hang up. Nathan Peterman threw five interceptions in one half of a football game, and he still has a job. Mike Glennon still has a job. And I think most people would say that Colin Kaepernick's probably better than both of those guys. And I've heard the argument of, well, nobody wants the circus or nobody wants the questions that come along. And I guess that's sort of where the frustration with the Drew Brees statement comes in too, right? Because Brees saying, I feel like it's disrespecting the flag or disrespecting the military. And it never was about that. And so if the question is, we don't want to talk about police brutality, I think that's the frustration is that, well, what is the media circus? What is the negative thing that we don't want to talk about? That's the disconnect. And I think that's part of, will continue to divide football fans, I think in a, in a lot of ways. And so I think that, I don't have an answer for it. I don't, but I do have a, a hypothetical that doesn't really ha- maybe have an answer, but how much of this changes. If Colin Kaepernick completes that stupid fade pass in the corner to Michael Crabtree and they beat the Ravens, does this change any of the math on this? Do people look at Colin Kaepernick because then he's a Super Bowl champion as different? And I don't know that there's an answer to that. Well, as a Niner fan, first of all, they should have just given the ball to Frank Gore. 
Am I wrong on that, Marcus? They should have just given the ball to Frank Gore. <laughs> they gave the ball to Frank Gore, and then Jim Harbaugh randomly called a timeout. Wait, he, <laughs> right, he called a timeout. But then even after that, they still should have just given the ball to Frank Gore. So that I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, yeah. I didn't mean to reopen yeah. that wound. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that aside, I think it's clear he was blackballed because you already brought up two names of quarterbacks who are clearly inferior to Colin Kaepernick who have jobs. And while I understand the point that, okay, you don't want the distraction, I think we all understand how everything works nowadays is that you're going to get an initial hit. There's going to be a lot of craziness in the initial week of a signing of something like that. But in this 24-hour news circle that we live in, and we have a president who's going to say something inflammatory on Twitter every day, the news will move on. And for every supposed season ticket holder who's going to cancel their tickets, there's going to be another one. I mean, there are waiting lists to get on season ticket lists for NFL teams all over. And I think for any fans, you might say that, oh, I'm not going to follow it. The NFL is the number one sport in America by leaps and bounds. There are plenty of football fans. And I question how many football fans really would stick by saying like, oh, if my team were to sign Colin Kaepernick, I'm not going to be a fan. I'm not going to watch anymore. It's like everyone who said, oh, if Trump gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. How much of that actually happened, right? I think people like to say a lot of things. And when it comes down to it, like the issues we're talking about, it's about action. And I'll put it this way. I think the NFL overestimated the hit that it would take if anyone were to have signed Colin Kaepernick. And I think they are paying for it now. And that's why you have a statement by Roger Goodell trying to fess up to the error of their ways. And again, you're right. Is Colin Kaepernick as good a quarterback as Drew Brees? No, he's not. Is he a guy who probably would have been one of the top 32 quarterbacks in the league still? I think so. Now, no one's saying he's a top 10 quarterback. No one's saying he's maybe even a top 20 quarterback. But is he better than guys who are starting in the NFL? I think he was. And so I think that's where the issue is, is that he had his beliefs. He showed them in a way that was his peaceful protests. That was recommended to him by a former Green Beret and football player, Nate Boyer, and he's paid for it with his career. And now you're hearing people say, oh, some team should go out and sign him. I just don't know that that's going to happen now this far removed from the last game he played in January of 2017. But he's got a cause. He has a voice. And I think a lot of people are now seeing what he actually meant when he took a knee during those national anthems. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I couldn't say it any better, Nora. And so is there a responsibility for leagues like the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball to do anything? Should they do anything? What do you guys think in terms of these organizations and what their responsibility is in all of this? I mean, I think it would be nice. I mean, it would be wonderful, right? If everybody was on the same page and we all agreed and we all moved forward with, with a new idea and a new plan. One, I don't think it's possible. I also don't think people would buy in. Corey talked about us being in a state in the world in social media, especially with people make statements and those statements inevitably get dissected down to the letter. And you're always going to have people that are never going to agree or are always going to shout down an argument or shout down a statement. And I think especially when you talk about sports leagues, when you talk about corporations, brands, and that sort of thing, I think there's just a cynicism that sort of permeates the world now that no matter who it is and no matter what the statement is, there's going to be somebody that looks at it and says, well, you're doing this 
you're not altruistic, that you're doing this to sort of make money. You're doing this to try and court fans or to court consumers or what have you. And I think that perception is always going to be incredibly hard to get past. So I think in terms of leagues and things like that doing and teams doing things, I think there's always going to be sort of a cynicism to it. I think like with anything, right? I think the change sort of comes from within. I think like we're talking about with the protests, the change comes from the people, the actual citizens, the residents of a community. And I think when you talk about sports, I think the change comes from the individuals. I think when you talk about from a player standpoint, right? And I'm just thinking basketball, but you talk about what LeBron James has done. You talk about guys like Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr, who have been very outspoken about their feelings about these sorts of things, going out and making statements. And I think that is sort of where the change comes from. I think as a community, as as people, as a country, I think we have a better time sort of identifying and relating to individuals making statements than organizations making statements. Because I think we've all seen too many of these things be so group tested and focus grouped and PR shaped that I think we've all sort of become cynical to, to seeing things like that. But I think that if an organization did not say anything about George Floyd or racial equality or racial justice or Black Lives Matter, people would be piling down on them for not saying anything. So in that sense, those leagues are kind of between a rock and a hard place. They are expected to say something and to be on the side of progress and justice. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm actually glad that sports leagues are at least giving out a boilerplate tweet saying they support for example, people's right to protest, because speaking for myself, if they didn't, I would wonder why they wouldn't be saying anything. For God's sakes, NASCAR held a moment of silence during their race in Atlanta for Black Lives Matter. Maybe some people felt they were forced to do it, but that's a gesture and that is something. So yeah, I'm kind of thinking this in a sense of glass half full, and I might be giving leaks too much of the benefit of the doubt. But other than that, Marcus, I think you're right. True change has to come from the grassroots. And I keep going back to the sustained momentum. Whenever you see protests, whether it's in Minneapolis or New York or in North Hollywood or London or Berlin or Paris or Auckland, you're seeing thousands, tens of thousands of people demanding change. And so that gives me belief that there will be sustained lasting change that will come from this. And so in the realm of sports, I see individual players leading the charge for this racial enlightenment. And when you see white players in mostly white sports like auto racing or the National Hockey League stand up and say, what happened was wrong. We need to fight against police brutality. Black Lives Matter. I think that strikes a chord, at least within me, that something is different this time. And that's kind of why I think that something will change and for the better. Well, guys, we're all huge sports fans. And that's one of the reasons I love sports. One of my reasons I'm such a sports fan is because, and it's kind of gotten lost in all these controversies of the past few years, unfortunately, is to me, sports is such a uniting force. It's one of the few things that crosses racial, ethnic, all those barriers. And you know, if you're a 49er fan, if you're a Seahawk fan, it doesn't matter. Or if you're rooting for a player, I'm a Seahawks fan. I love Russell Wilson. I mean, there are people who've all 
races and ages. I grew up as a Seattle fan. Ken Griffey Jr. was God. He was the greatest player we built our lives around. Ken Griffey Jr. as a sports fan in Seattle. I never, never even crossed my mind that I'm rooting for a black guy. I, I wasn't taught to think that way. I don't look at people as, you know, races. He was just the greatest player in, the, in, in all the players. And I think that's what's beautiful about sports. There's nothing more powerful. A statement put out by a league or an artificial symbolic stance or, I don't know, some of this stuff just seems like it's playing for the cameras. We're going to lock arms. We're going to hold up this sign. We're going to do this. The actual games themselves, I mean, the image of teammates of different races hugging and extolling each other and working together to accomplish a dream, an image of fans in the stands together. When you see tens of thousands of fans, when you're in the stands together and rooting for your favorite team, especially an NFL game, or we know going to SC games, we're not looking around going, okay, what race is everybody? No, we're all just SC. We're all Trojans. We're all together. We're all so united in that moment rooting for our team. Think of those iconic sports moments, and we think of who we're with, and we were all just humans enjoying that moment. And I think that's something so beautiful about sports. I don't want to see it get lost in all this controversy and all this bickering and all this that's been happening. And it started with the Kaepernick thing, and it almost ruined it for me a little bit because, like, now I got to tune into sports and I got to watch it like I'm watching a cable news channel or I'm watching Crossfire. So, like, I wanted to get away from that with sports. Sports was that escape, it was that beautiful thing. We just came together, we were all rooted for our teams, and we talked about it. We got into the players, and we all just, it was that microcosm of what the world could be. We're all just kind of human beings pulling in the same direction for our team and pulling against the team that we're rooting against or whatever. And I don't want to see us get away from that. So I think the most powerful thing sports to do is not artificial symbolic gestures, but I think it's just the image of players on the field of Drew Brees and Malcolm Jenkins hopefully embracing after they win a Super Bowl together. That's more powerful than any statement Roger Goodell or any fake video somebody could put out or anything somebody could do during the national anthem. To me, that's the real life stuff or the image of fans of different backgrounds in the stands together, all cheering, hugging, embracing because sports. Why? We all love sports. So I think that's the most powerful thing that sports could do maybe to be a healing force. UCLA still sucks. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) Something we can all agree on, right? If I can interject, I keep talking about being positive about this, Corey. I think that would be ideal, but I'm not sure if that's possible because even though we want sports to be an escape, the players use that as a vehicle to advance social causes. And I used to think that, well, just to use a phrase that Laura Ingram used, you can tell somebody just to shut up and dribble. I don't think that's practical. And I don't think that people are going to hear that. And frankly, I think the horses are out of the barn. I'm not really sure that you can just go back inside that bubble and just believe that everything is copacetic without the intrusion of societal realities. I mean, that's just how it is. And as long as the players that you're rooting for come from backgrounds that aren't fair and they understand that they have a platform where their change can be made, or they're going to use that in I'm sorry to break it to you, Corey, but that's just how it's going to be. Reality and sports are always going to commingle, especially from now on. Well, Bill, I understand what you're saying. And yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm just a hopeless romantic. Maybe I'm just uh, overly optimistic because having my experience in watching, especially during this pandemic, I've been forced to watch old sports games from the past. I've been just binging old baseball and football games on YouTube from the 70s, 80s, and 90s and stuff. And I just think that it seems like I think that's the true message. I think that's a better message that can get through. I understand that. And I don't think anybody should not be allowed to talk or told to shut up and play your game or whatever, because I think that's right. I think that if Malcolm Jenkins wants to speak out, he should speak out. 
And if Drew Brees wants to say what he wants to say, he should say what he wants to say. Tim Tebow, we all know that was a few years ago. He's going to kneel. He's going to profess his faith. He used his platform in a way for something different than what Colin Kaepernick did. But he was someone who was considered, quote, unquote, controversial because he had certain feelings and used his platform. I'm all for that. I think it's great. And I think players should do it. But I think the way you do it, I think it's just you got to be careful. I think you don't want to kill a golden goose. You don't want to make it into something that people go, it's not what it used to be. Or it's something that's so controversial and so hot button, like with this Drew Brees thing with what happened, where every time somebody says something, there's just this vitriol and back and forth and people have to put apologies. And then people are going to be scared to say anything. And then it just kind of changes. It creates attention for the games and with the announcers and or the announcer saying the right thing is Joe Buck saying the right thing. And then I come up from a broadcaster's perspective. How do broadcasters address this? How do they walk these eggshells of what they're supposed to say and not say? And then they're going to get ripped on Twitter if they say the wrong thing and whatever. It's tricky for everyone. So I just think it's, I don't know, maybe some of the simplest answers is the right one. But again, I, I go back and Marcus brought the LA riots in 92. We all remember that. I was in high school at that time, I think. You know, I remember the words of Rodney King where he just kind of looked at the camera and said, can't we all just get along? <laughs> and it seems so simple, but sometimes it's like, The simplest answer is the one that's the hardest to reach. Maybe that's what it is. According to Twitter, Joe Buck will never say the right thing. So, you know, he's got that going for him. (laughs) Yeah, that was a bad example. Maybe I shouldn't have said Joe Buck. (laughs) Al Michaels instead, maybe. uh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think worrying about how people will react to a player's views on issues is overblown. I think the ultimate arbiter of whether or not a fan base sticks by a player is whether that player can play. And I truly believe that, well, here I am being all Pollyannish again, I truly believe that from here on out, a player's personal viewpoints on issues off the field will have no bearing on whether or not he or she will get on the field. I really do think that fans will finally separate a player's personal beliefs from his on-field success. So really, I really think that regardless of how controversial or not a player is, he or she will stay on the field only by the basis of his or her ability. I tend to agree with that. That's kind of what the point I was making earlier with Colin Kaepernick. If Deshaun Watson or Patrick Mahomes was doing what Colin Kaepernick did, they wouldn't be out of the league. There's no way any of the owners in the NFL would be dumb enough to blackball Patrick Mahomes from the league or those guys who are the most marketable stars right now. So if you're a fringe player or you're not playing that well on the field and you happen to kind of carry some baggage with you, let's just say, or be high maintenance, I think that's going to count against you. And maybe for better or worse, that's what happened with Colin Kaepernick. That's all I'll say about that. And I think, again, I think you're right about sports can be such a unifying force for fans and for people who love sports like all four of us do. And if you enjoy listening to this show, please subscribe and rate us wherever you find your favorite podcast, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, or TuneIn. The website is Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcasts. You can find and follow me on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. And I'm joined today by three fellow USC Trojans, Marcus Grant, Corey Olson, and Bill Sue. If you guys would like to promote any social media, go ahead and do it now. Find me on Twitter, Marcus G, M-A-R-C-A-S-G. I'm not on Twitter, but you can go to KTRH.com, News Radio KTRH on Twitter or on Facebook, and that's where I post daily articles and updates. 
And you can follow me on my Twitter account at Bill Sue. That is B-I-L-L-S-O-U. I'm Sam Farber, host of USC Trojans Wrap-Up on the USC Trojans Radio Network. And you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. Another thing that we should get to now is how this is going to affect college athletes and specifically those at USC. We've seen across the country college athletes speaking up, attending protests, organizing to go register to vote, which is obviously a very important thing. If you want to affect change, you got to be a part of it. So registering to vote, I would recommend to anyone who's listening and hasn't, you got to do it. If you want to change what's going on, you got to have a voice in who's elected and what kind of things are done, not just on the national level, but at a local level, at a state level as well. And so USC The football team had a meeting over Zoom, kind of like us, just on a bigger scale to discuss the issues that have come out of George Floyd's death. And from all reports about it, Clay Helton, and this is not to be a surprise, was very good at letting everyone have their voices be heard. And for whatever people want to say, and I know I think all of us have said it at one time or another about Clay Helton's coaching abilities, but I don't think anyone can dispute that Clay Helton is a good person, a good man, and he's the type of person that college students can look to as a leader in terms of a lot of things. And so I think that's great that they've had those kind of discussions as a team. I'm sure the other teams at USC have had similar things as well. And what we've seen too is like at Florida State, where Marvin Wilson basically called out the new head coach there, Mike Norvell, for basically not being completely truthful with a reporter when saying he communicated with every one of his players one-on-one. And Marvin Wilson basically said, that ain't true. And so we've seen how the player power dynamic has maybe shifted. Do you think there is going to be a shift between student athletes and coaches in the power dynamic? Because we've seen, especially in colleges, the coaches have so much power over the athletes. Is that changing in this new day and age? Maybe a little bit. I think there's always going to still be, the coaches will still maintain the majority of the power, mostly because the players cycle through so quickly. I know it always feels like there's that college player that's been in school for like eight or 10 years, but in reality, there's no such thing as a 10-year college veteran. So it's a little bit different where you have a guy like Tom Brady who spends 20 years in New England and can sort of dictate a little bit how things go or Drew Brees in New Orleans or go on and on and on. It's a little bit harder to completely change that power dynamic when you're going to have a whole class cycle through in four or five years. Meanwhile, the coaches, in theory, will stay there for a lot longer. And so I think that will always kind of allow them to retain at least some power. But I do think college athletes are starting to understand their place in things and are starting to kind of flex what muscle they do have a little bit. Yeah, I think it's important that they have the conversation. You have to. This is the elephant in the room. It's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, whatever you want to call it. It's heading into the season now. We're two months out. We're getting close to where camps are going to start and things like that. Teams have to take this on because obviously sports, as we've been talking about over the last hour or so of the show, is such an important facet of life and it's such an important part of reflecting social trends and societal trends. So obviously you talk about what's going on in the NFL. Well, this is going to happen in college as well with these young athletes. And we're seeing these stories about the situation at Iowa with the allegations against the coaches there. And Nara mentioned Florida State. We're seeing all these kind of crop up now in the last couple of weeks. So it's important for a school like USC, obviously on the map, huge in college football. Clay Helton to get out in front of this and say, let's get together and let's air this out now. Let's start ironing this out. Let's have a real conversation. Let's 
clear the air so we can kind of get out in front of this and kind of know where we're going. We're not just kind of going through uncharted territory. So I think it's important for people like Clay Helton, people like Mike Bone, the athletic director at USC, especially these major schools, the Power Five and the real big, you know, the Alabamas and the Clemsons and the schools at the top of Michigan's and all that. They have to kind of really get out in front of this from a college football perspective and start to kind of address this as well. So this doesn't fester into the season. We don't have things cropping up. And like the instance at Florida State, the distrust between players and coaches or a back and forth. Coaches need to get out in front of this and go to the players and make sure things are good, make sure things kind of good before they even get into the season so we don't have these things down the road. To answer your question, Nora, yes. And I think that the players have, at least right now, the leverage for a couple of reasons. First of all, and I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, the zeitgeist of change in the air is allowing these grassroots forces to finally be heard. And in the realm of college sports, I really think that more and more people are deferring to the players and having them tell the normal power structure how they feel and what's going on. One other thing that I think is an influence is the recent ruling that players in college can start capitalizing on their name, image, and likeness. Now, that's actual power, and I'm not exactly sure of the timetable for that, but this is kind of another instance where the student-athlete, quote-unquote, the player-slash-labor has more power and they are emboldened more often to dictate the terms of their, well, for lack of a better word, again, employment. Now, Marcus, I do see your point that a coaching staff probably will maintain power because players just come and go after three or four years. I kind of see that, especially now that NIL will be in play, I think players will decide that if a certain 15, 20-year stalwart head coach at this program is doing things in a way that he doesn't like or won't benefit him as a college player, he will go to another program whose head coach is willing to be more flexible when it comes to making money, basically. So... I kind of see a sea change with this. I really do think that college players are going to have more power and more influence in the seasons ahead. Now, to be clear, I agree that the name image likeness policies that are around the corner should help student athletes have a little bit more power, shall we say. But it's still to be determined exactly how that policy is going to be enacted. We're still dealing with the NCAA after all here, and they are supposed to take place beginning with the 2021-22 academic year. So we'll see what happens there. We've seen that the NCAA is still lobbying the federal government to try and get the federal government to put in this set of rules and regulations for them so that they don't have to deal with individual states and all of that. So we're still a ways from seeing exactly how that's going to be done. And I think all of this together, though, we're all hitting everything at this crazy firestorm of a time where you're having the NIL policy. You've got a global pandemic. You've got protests for equal rights and to end police brutality. Everything's hitting here at this fulcrum of time that is going to lead, hopefully, to better things down the line in the future. Now, 
we all went to USC. It's a little bit different from when we were there to how it is now, basically a quarter century later from when we all started there. But USC, it's a major institution in a major city with a diverse population. Does it have a greater responsibility to show its support for students of color and to show support for these issues? I think you get into a dangerous area, obviously, as somebody who is a person of color, I think still it's a dangerous area if you start sort of, I don't want to say picking sides, but I think as a university, what they have a responsibility to do is to at least foster a dialogue, right? I mean, that was always the belief about what college campuses are about, right? It's supposed to be bastions of thought in places where ideas are exchanged and, and that sort of thing. And I think, I mean, look, we all have our own perspectives. I mean, Nara, we are friends with, and I was a roommate with a guy who was the president of the college Republicans, right? And I think the biggest thing that USC and all universities have a responsibility to do is to set up a space, I hate to say safe space, but to set up a safe space where people can have these sort of conversations and have this sort of discussion. Because, I mean, theoretically, these are the people, these students are becoming, I know it sounds cliche, they are the future leaders of America, right? Like they go out and some of these people end up in government, they will shape policy, they will be thought leaders in one respect or another. And so I think if you are USC, if you are UCLA, if you're any school, you want to set up a situation where everybody can feel sort of comfortable with expressing their ideas and having these conversations and involving members of the community because universities are part of the communities in which they're located and having those people come in and be able to express their perspectives to maybe form a better consensus. I mean, look, if we're going to get to a consensus on how policing should be done effectively, I think it takes everybody. And I think universities can sort of be at the center of those conversations. I agree with what you said there, Marcus, about the bastions of thought and what college campuses are supposed to be and what the ideal of them is. And I think that the great evidence of that is the four of us here. I mean, we're all four here having a thoughtful conversation here now as we all keep repeatedly mentioning a quarter of a century after we were in college. <laughs> Let's keep driving that point home. Yeah. I hear the phrase quarter of a century again. But we wouldn't all be sitting here in different places here in the year 2020, a quarter of a century after we were on campus together. If we hadn't all come together as friends from diverse backgrounds and different places who found each other on a college campus who had some similar interests about broadcasting and sports and whatever. And here we are. And we have just us four, we all branch out and have huge other frameworks of friends that we made. A wide, vast world. I know myself, just going through my social media, my friends from college, not just you guys, my old fraternity friends. And they're from all over, believe me, all over the political spectrum, all over every kind of spectrum. But they have one thing in common. They're all my friends. They're all friends with me from college. And I have something in common, something I can connect with all of them on or talk about. And that happened in college. I wouldn't have experienced that. I was a guy that grew up in the suburbs in Seattle in a relatively just kind of middle class urban life. But I wanted to branch out of it. And I was glad I went to L.A., the heart of South Central L.A., so to speak, a few years after the L.A. riots. And I got to experience new people, new things, new culture, new experience. I got to see what it was like to be in a neighborhood, the neighborhood around USC, that is definitely not a, a majority white neighborhood. And it was different for me to experience that. But it taught me things about life and it helped prepare me for living in other cities. I've been kind of a nomad in my broadcasting career. I lived in Vegas for several years. Now I'm in Houston, one of the, if not the most diverse cities in America. And I live in an urban environment again, but I always go back to what I learned in college at USC and taught me about living on my own, living in diverse environments, taking myself out of my comfort zone. And I think that's the key to, like Marcus talked about, for what college is for. I think USC needs to continue to foster that. I think the current administration with Dr. Fult now taking over and, and Mike Bone so far, the early returns seem to be very promising. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversies on campus 
the last couple of years, very serious stuff that happened with the previous administration. And that has to be cleaned up with the image. It certainly tarnished the image of USC. We all know that because of what's happened in recent years with the admission scandal and with the other scandals on campus. But I think that they're heading in the right direction. But it's not just USC. It's all universities. But USC, because of its location, like I mentioned, jokingly, the University of South Central, but because of its inner city location right there in the heart of L.A., always will have that unique role to play in the image of college in America and college life, especially college football, because of USC football's iconic status. I think it has that role even in society. It's something that transcends even sports. Everyone knows USC football. It's kind of like the Yankees. So I think that's an important role for USC. But I think the current administration seems to be on the right track. I will say that even though the University of Southern California is situated in an area that has seen historical racial strife, I don't believe it has a greater responsibility to show that it supports its students, student athletes, well, students of color, any more than any other college or university that has students of color. And so if Clay Helton and the football team had a Zoom meeting to discuss what's been going on these past couple of weeks, great and more power to them. And we shall see going forward what USC and other colleges and universities choose to do. Marcus, you brought up your freshman year roommate, Jason Gray, and still friends with him. I mean, it's one of those things where you can be friends with people of all sorts of different backgrounds. And like you've all mentioned, you meet them in college, and that's where you get to learn from other people of diverse backgrounds, and you get different perspectives on life. And hopefully, the message I think all of us are trying to bring forward is that you learn from other people. You don't get set in your ways, but you have to learn to listen to other people and get their perspective on things. And you may not agree with everything that they have to say, but if everyone does it respectfully, peacefully, and understand where everyone is coming from, I think that leads to change. I think that leads to a better America for the future. So it's been a really good discussion we've been having on the Everything USC podcast. If you enjoy listening to us, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. The website to find us is Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media at Believe Podcast. For me, I am on Twitter at Narawang Sports. Find and follow me there. That's N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. And guys, I'll let you promote any social media you guys have to let people reach out to you. Yep, I'm Marcus G on Twitter, M-A-R-C-A-S-G. I post at KTRH.com, and it's News Radio KTRH on Twitter or on Facebook. That's the best way to get anything new that I'm putting out there. And I am on Twitter, at Bill Sue. That's B-I-L-L-S-O-U. It's been a really good discussion, a long discussion that we've had. I think it's been great to get this out there and let people know what some SC perspectives are. But now, before we close it out here, let's end on a bit of a lighter note. We got to talk a little bit about what the three of you guys are thinking about USC football, USC sports in general. USC football seems to be killing it on the recruiting trail. We've got a lot of turnover on the basketball squad, a lot of new guys transferring into the program few guys transferred out and just the differences that have been going on here in this last year with the global pandemic shutting down the spring season and how schools are going to move forward here in the fall. I'm going to throw it out there, whatever you guys want to talk about regarding USC sports. 
Well, all I'm going to say is I was really hoping that COVID-19 would spare us the embarrassment of a beatdown at the hands of Alabama, but I don't think that's going to happen now. <laughs> it seems like that game will go forward. Yeah, Godspeed, Clay Helton. That one does not look exciting for us. But listen, maybe because they haven't been able to practice as much as well, they had spring practice get canceled like we did. Maybe this whole thing is going to even out the playing field a little. Maybe? Sure. All right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, hey, I mean, I don't want to sound like a worry word, but do you really think that the season is going to go off as planned? I still don't think so. I think the season will start. I think all signs point to everything sort of starting semi on time. And I still feel like Alabama USC is one that, at least name brand wise, is one that it's hard to just completely scrap that game because while we are not the USC of the past, the name value is still there. And I just can't imagine that a TV network wouldn't want to put that on. I can speak to that. I'm in Texas, and that's where the game is scheduled to be played, of course, at AT&T Stadium in Arlington. And the governor of Texas has recently said, in fact, that we've just moved into the next phase of the reopening, and the phase includes opening outdoor sports stadiums to, I think, 50% capacity they're allowed to. Texas Motor Speedway reopened with IndyCar. The PGA returns in Fort Worth. NASCAR is returning to Texas Motor Speedway next month. And the governor of Texas has said they plan on starting University of Texas and Texas A&M seasons on time with at least some fans. That's what they're saying. So in Texas, I can tell you, and that's where the USC-Alabama game is scheduled to be played, they are moving at least in that direction. All systems go to A, having the season, and B, having at least some fans in the stands are not saying packed, there'll be 100,000 or 80,000 or anything like that, but having a season and having fans in the stands. So right now, that's what they're pointing to, at least in Texas. But of course, that's with everything the last four or five months in our world, it could change in a second. So we'll wait and see. See, that'll probably be the case. And I'm really sorry, Nora, I think I might be going upfield from USC because I'm kind of like touching on the coronavirus pandemic. I don't know if many people realize that in many states right now, the cases of infections are not only rising, but spiking. And even though there are a lot of contradictory science that is coming out, I think that there is a sort of consensus that large-scale events like sporting events are the seeds of these quote-unquote super spreader events that will exponentially explode the cases of COVID-19 in a community. And Corey, you might be right. I mean, there might be games that go on as scheduled around Labor Day weekend. But what I'm afraid of is that there will be cases of this virus that will go around that dwarf the numbers that we're experiencing now. And unfortunately, I think we are getting into a mode of, all right, the virus is around but we can't let life stop for it. And we're just going to just like march on. And if you get the corona, you get the corona. I don't think that's a really wise thing to do. I think it's extremely foolish, if not selfish. So even though I could be wrong in thinking that the game with the Crimson Tide won't go on as scheduled, I'm not really sure if it should go on as scheduled. That's what I'm saying. I think that's fair, but I also think those are two different conversations. Right. I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. There should be two different conversations, though, you know? I think when it comes down to it, the almighty dollar plays a role in all of this, and there's so much money on the line with football and college football, especially for colleges, that they're going to do their best to make sure the season happens. Now, again, we can debate about whether fans should be allowed into any of these places, and I would be on the side of not really allowing fans to attend because of the threat of spreading the virus. But 
I think we're going to see games get played, and it's going to be interesting to see how these teams that have had less preparation time, I know the NCAA is talking about having a six-week ramp-up period for college football to get into the season, and again, we will see where we stand in another couple of months to see if there are more cases of infections going on, if there's any kind of a spike that we're seeing because of, hey, just the fact that there's these protests and people aren't really social distancing during these protests that have been going on around the country. So it will be interesting to see what teams and schools do, especially when you have so many different states affected differently by the coronavirus and what each state's governments and local jurisdictions are going to do. Obviously, like Corey said, in Texas, they're reopening things at a quicker pace than maybe they are doing in California. But because USC is going to be traveling out for that game, are they going to be affected by any California regulations or anything like that? So those are all going to be interesting topics to keep an eye on as well. But again, anything else you guys want to bring up in terms of the state of USC athletics, what you're looking forward to, anything like that? I'll just say that I had some conversations with other fellow SC alums about this in recent months. Andy Enfield got saved probably by the pandemic because he got an incomplete. I think, quite frankly, he was coaching for his job. I think if we had lost in the first round of the tournament, he probably would have been gone. And I think that he kind of got a do-over. So I think Andy Enfield is back. And we'll never quite know what would have been for that last basketball season. But I, I did note that. He, I don't want to say he lucked out because of the pandemic, but the shutdown certainly gave him kind of an out where his job status got saved for another year, basically. I have a friend whose family is in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, Marshall Kellner. He's actually the play-by-play voice for the Fort Myers Miracle, the Florida State League affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. And he is an absolute USC men's basketball fanatic. And he keeps touting on our alumni Facebook page about how USC men's basketball is back, USC men's basketball is back. USC men's basketball has been on the verge for the past decade. I was like, to be back, didn't you have to actually be there in the first place? Well, that is true, but people keep touting Andy Enfield's recruiting, and they're just waiting for like these recruits just to blossom, and I've been waiting for them to blossom for the past five years now. Now, I thought this past year was encouraging, And I know that, is it Evan Mobley? Is that the number one recruit that's coming in next year? That is correct. Okay, yeah. And he's coming to USC, and that's absolutely fantastic. But like with the football program, Andy Enfield has to coach him up. And again, we'll see about the men's basketball program. Now, about the football program, I understand Clay Helton's a very, very nice person, and I get that. I was with him until the back half of the 2018 season where he basically lost control of the team. And I was just thinking, okay, at some point you have to produce or else you're gone. This offseason, I was, and this is maybe my naivete, I was absolutely shocked how rotten the foundation was. I didn't know how meager the staff was when it came to recruiting in particular. And so I am heartened by all the changes, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And so there's a lot of new energy, which is good. The class of 2021 is looking really, really awesome. The class of 2020 is going, eh, so-so. I'm willing to give a mulligan on it, especially because I still am not quite certain that there will be a season. I'm just thinking that Clay Helen is still in the hot seat. I'll throw out a prediction that assuming that there is a full season and it goes as normal this fall, they're going to go like nine and three. And if they go less than that, Clay Helton is gone. What do you guys think? I think if he goes 9-3, and his job is going to be safe. And especially with a good recruiting class coming in. 
So that's what I'll say. And I think at this point, wouldn't any of us take nine and three, honestly? I was going to say, I don't think I saw nine wins on the schedule. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll say, Bill, you're very optimistic there. But, hey, really? I, I hope we go 9-3. Well, really, We're I, definitely going to be 0-1. I mean, let's just start with 0-1, okay, okay, okay? And then we'll work backward from there. <laughs> and then they'll win 9 over their last 11, and that'd be great. Yeah, I don't know. I, maybe the outlook is a little too rosy from my end. But, I don't know, maybe, you know, USC is still USC. I think there should be some expectations. I think 9-3 and in a possible division title should be it. I think that's the expectation every year, Bill is for USC to compete for at least, at the very least, a Pac-12 South division title. And so we will see. Hopefully we are going to have football. I think it would be great for all of us just because we are such big fans for having something to do. I think there's only so many old games you can watch, right, Corey? (laughs) Believe me, I'm testing the theory recently. Because I'm a huge baseball guy, and not having baseball has just been crazy. i got to watch some baseball, so I've just been watching more old baseball the last three months than I ever thought I would in my life. And it's great, but I kind of want to see some current games where I don't know the outcomes yet. That'd be nice, you know. <laughs> I've been getting my sports fix by watching The Challenge on MTV. <laughs> <laughs> we rest our case. Need no further proof. Yeah, that's all you need to know right there. That's where we're at in sports right now. <laughs> I've been watching that tag program that J.J. Watt's hosting. Uh-huh. Oh, Ultimate Tag, yeah. That is what qualifies as sports, basically, now. Ultimate Tag, (laughs) the Titan Games, those kind of shows. Yeah, yeah, holy moly. Well, these guys, we moved on from the marble racing. Remember the first few weeks when it was the marble racing every day? (laughs) That was really crazy. We actually got out of that phase. That marble racing was so, like, April. We're done with that, guys. We moved on to tag. So hopefully we can get to actual... At this point, it's going to be like we could just watch guys practice or something for an NFL training camp. We'll get excited or something. So hopefully we get something. You're right. We all need it. We all need it. I'm still pretty pessimistic. I'm still kind of shocked that the German Bundesliga started three weeks ago and that NASCAR started two weeks ago, but apparently they've locked down the spread of the virus. So yeah, I'm very, very glad that I'm seeing like actual live sports right now. And again, there are no fans attending those events. So I think if that is continued, then we're going to get sports. We just won't have fans in attendance. And I think, again, to bring up baseball, that's kind of like this whole discussion. The owners are crying poor that they're not going to have fans and they don't want to pay out a bunch of salaries to guys. And so we'll see if Major League Baseball comes back. But I think it's time to wrap this thing up. We've had a really good discussion about the big issues that are going on. I'm glad I was able to bring on Marcus Grant, Corey Olson, and Bill Sue, three of my friends and classmates from the USC days to come on and discuss this with me. And we even managed to throw in a little bit about USC sports there and what we think about the state of the program in at the end. So for Marcus, Corey, and Bill, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode four of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with a show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And like I end every show, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.